Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke, and the three amigos, Martin Lucas, Paul Alexandru, and Alex Mosco. Today, our conversation is around permission, decision-making, and narrative. Could we start with your thoughts around the narrative, permission, and relevance in order to ensure that your messaging is welcomed by the customer? Great question, Marcus. <laughs> Thanks for asking it. So I was, I was running a masterclass yesterday on uh, building personal profile. And permission was kind of at the heart of the conversation we are having. We were talking about the fact that people have basically, that brands can no longer own the conversation, right? So in terms of the, the consumer has found ways to turn off from the many messages that the that, that brands want to communicate to them, right? So there's blindness when they're looking at a web page. They've got ad blockers. They've got streaming services. They skip ads. And we've got a natural defense mechanism that we're very, we're, we, we keenly use that we're able to reject messaging that we don't want, we don't find of value, right? And, and there was a, a stat that came up, and it's, it's, it's an astonishing stat, actually, a couple of people on the call actually rejected it because it is so astonishing. But I don't know if you remember, but when you used to search on Google, the, on the right-hand side, there used to be ads, right? And those ads are no longer there. And there's a, there's, a, there's a fantastic book written by a chap called Mark Sweezy called The Context Marketing Revolution. And in it, he talks, he, he says that actually the reason he believes those ads are no longer there is because of the, the percentage of them that actually drove action, right? So if you imagine Google is this incredible technology company, it's got some of the best targeting in the world, if not the best targeting in the world. And yet those ads were driving action 1.98% of the time, which means 98% of them had no action whatsoever. So this central tenet of marketing that delivering the right message at the right person at the right time is no longer relevant. It's, it's no longer so appropriate. It doesn't work. And what he says is that this age of interruption where brands owned the message, they owned the conversation, where they could inject themselves into activities that you were enjoying and kind of to pull your attention away, that's over. It was over 10 years ago. And we're now moving into a more permission-based architecture, a more permission-based economy, where actually you have to get the permission of your market to converse with them. And it's no longer about companies talking to companies or companies talking to people. It's about people talking to people. So when you think of all the work we do on LinkedIn and the kind of posts that we've put up, all of that content is growing exponentially. Branded content continues to grow exponentially. But whereas branded content gets relatively little engagement, kind of human content, if you like, is not just growing exponentially, but engagement is growing because we want it and we've been given permission. We, we give our permission to have it. So if we're talking about this concept of permission, it is absolutely key if you are a company that wants to communicate to people, you've got to get their permission and you've got to communicate in a very human way. So Martin, how do you keep with the willy waving of the CMO out of story because it seems that there's an awful lot of ego and uh, assumption that goes into quite a lot of marketing still today. I look at the tech companies and the atrocious drivel that they pour out 
my view is probably unpopularly that probably 95% of marketing departments could easily be removed and the money spent on lottery tickets with a higher return. (laughs) Um, Am I being unfair? Uh, I don't know about the lottery ticket stuff, so I'm not going to go as quite as aggressive (laughs) as that, but (laughs) you may may have a very fair point. I think that the less emotive the industry in terms of the purchase pattern, right? So the more tech, the more B2B, the more financial services, the more insurance, stuff like that. That's the people that lose the luster. They don't understand why people are actually interested in buying their products. So what Alex is talking about is how does one seek permission of your audience, right, for them to engage? And it comes back to relevance, right? And it seems like such a logical, obvious thing, but then I've been I've been caught in this world for nearly six years investigating the structure of language and communication, right? And the reason why it's, it's obvious but not fixed is a constant stream of bias, right? So the tech company gets caught within a mindset that says, what we do is tech, therefore let's talk about tech. Mm-hmm. What, what the user wants, what the buyer wants, what the market wants is they want to find out what's in it for me. That's the permission that they're looking for is what is the gains that I'm going to get from this? The fact that it's got technology as part of it is, is a secondary thing for the vast majority of all decision-making meaning that the primary thing is what's in it for me, what's the emotional connection, what am I going to gain from it, what other people have gained from it, what's the story that goes with it. Then I want to check that the tech actually works, right? It's only then that I care about it. And yet most people are doing their their content the other way around, which is here's the tech, here's what you should care about. Look at us, we're trying to validate ourselves. And that's where you run into a lot of problems. You absolutely do. According to Forrester, 80% of technology purchases were made by line of business managers in 2019. That means that you can't talk geek to non-geeks. No one cares about that kind of stuff. That's like showing photos of your ugly children to strangers. So, Paul, on that note, let's bring you in. So how do you make sure that you're listening and you're earning that permission? I think that's a really good question. Because, and we're seeing this, most rational businesses now are sort of embracing more of a customer first mindset and approach, not just to comms, but to business and service design. And that really starts with understanding not just the demographics of who it is that we're designing for, but what moves and motivates them. And I think when you start to empathize with your audience, whether they be internally an internal stakeholder audience or an external customer audience, I think you're better equipped to build more relevant comms and relevant assets and relevant initiatives um, that will engage them, that will enable them to give their consent for you to uh, for you to engage them. What do you need to do in order to create that permission in terms of? getting out there, getting uh, to speak to them, getting to speak to their customers, getting to speak to lapsed customers. Because, you know, last time we spoke, we talked about operating at both ends of the extreme. So raving fans and people who've dumped you, um, you know, your exes. And in order to get more closer to the truth, because the middle layer don't really understand what's going on or why they buy. So what do we have to do and what tools, resources, approaches do we need to adopt in order to be able to gather those stories? Well, I think you're referring to sort of extreme user interviews, aren't you, where you get the the pointiest insights from fewer participants. 
ultimately comes back to understanding how we can design or think as our audience rather than on behalf of them. And I think it goes to, you know, inherent in this concept of permission really is the idea of control. And, um, you know, historically in the industrial age, that's businesses were very autocratic. You know, they had a point of view. Um, they created an asset. They created a product. They created a campaign. And they pushed it onto the world. And I think what Alex was referring to earlier was that the that control paradigm has fundamentally flipped now. And actually, the businesses that are succeeding are the ones that are designing campaigns and programs and cultures, not for others, but as them. So by doing that, they're creating stuff that is inherently more attuned to what people ultimately want. Do you mind if I just jump yeah, in? Because it was interesting. You, you, when you posed the question, Marcus, you talked about, I, I think you said creating permission or achieving permission. I think you can't go out there with kind of a, a permission-raising type strategy because permission's got to be given. To add to what Paul was saying, what brands need to do is they need to be thinking about how can they be of value to that customer, right? That, that's almost, how can I be helpful? Because that's the conversation you need to be having. And I think we've seen this during the COVID crisis is that those businesses that have been truly helpful during this time are the ones that are gaining that permission, but also generating business. They're the ones that you're seeing on LinkedIn saying, wow, we just scored clients this week, a few clients this week, or in the last few weeks, we've been getting loads of new clients. And, and it's because they um, understand the exchange of value, that if you give good value, then you get good business. And, and value is, is about understanding where people are, the context that they find themselves in, and then helping, to, to help, helping them gain momentum, right? So, so, so we're all struggling with different problems. And if you can help somebody gain momentum forward, then you're going to connect with them emotionally, right? Because, and then that momentum doesn't need to be physical. It can be in thinking as well, right? So just helping somebody to get more clarity around the problem that they're actually experiencing, that kind of epiphany will connect them to you. That will generate, that will, they will give you permission to give them more information because they've they value it and they, they want it on a more regular basis because of what it's able to do for them. And I think that's the difference. So, so brands got to stop projecting and they've got to start, it's a really hackney term, but they've got to start talking to their market and, and being as valuable and as helpful as they can. It strikes me that a critical part of this is patience. I think too often sales and marketing and comms tend to bit like a 14-year-old behind the bike sheds on a fumble and they're not getting permission and as a result of that they create resistance and <laughs> clearly that, that was familiar to both Martin and Paul <laughs> from that reaction. Deny. <laughs> they always seem in a rush and so Martin I'd like to bring you in on this because I know this is something that really gets in, uh, stuck in your crawl. People don't really understand people. So give us a couple of insights that will help marketeers and salespeople and particularly CROs and CMOs 
to stop creating artificial timetables and creating artificial pressure that only backfires, creates resistance and reduces the probability of achieving their mission? Great question. So let me go blue sky, then we'll get into the weeds, right? So the blue, the blue sky stuff, I'll quote Napoleon Hill, right? Napoleon Hill talked about the, the mind is either caught in a place of fear or a place of faith, right? And the same thing applies to brands. Most brands are following a fear-based strategy, right? Because that's how the media operates. And most of this happens unconsciously. And a fear-based strategy means that you're using negative critical language. Think about any message you've ever received from your bank, for example, right? <laughs> we were doing some analysis of banking this week, right? And it was that classic problem of how can the big banks adapt to the threat of fintech and things, right? And one of the pieces of analysis we did was Monzo Bank. They did a product management meeting where they said, do you know what? What do people like about banking? Well, part of it is that if you save up with your friends, you get to do more social activities. Oh, that's fantastic. Why don't we create a joint savings pot, right? So that's what they did with Monzo. And that's what killed, in a very positive way, their word of mouth marketing. Now, I believe Monzo's fallen off a little bit from what their initial growth was. They've moved into more of a a tech-type messaging, which is kind of ironic. But what they did was the savings pots, right? And what was great about that was it was just real life, very functional, very easy, and think about what that word of mouth was. Because now, myself, Marcus, and Paul have a savings pot. Alex is now upset that he doesn't have a savings pot. He's not part of it, and he wants to come away for the weekend with us. So now he changes his bank to Monzo. Then you've got change of bank accounts, right? Because you've made it real life, you've made it sociable. Most people are not doing that. The banking industry is not doing any analysis that says, why did Monzo win? I've just given you the number one thing that helped Monzo win, which is exactly the same way Uber won, which people miss out on, is the fact that it was based on human control. Because Uber allowed you to sit in the pub and somebody's giving you a dirty look, right? And you used to call the cab company and your mate's giving you a dirty look. So you call the cab company and they, they tell you like a pizza, it'll be there in five minutes, right? And then it's not there in five minutes. When you got Uber, you could say, hey, Alex, let's do one more shot. We've got a minute before the, the cab arrives. You see what I mean? You had human control. It went from mm-hmm. somebody giving me dirty licks to me being in control of the shot situation, which is absolutely what you want as a Scottish person on a night out, right? So my, <laughs> point, my point is that the banking industry is caught in this fear. Why does this fear arrive? It's because we sit in a blame-based society, right? So people sitting in the bank, it's not that they're necessarily not good at marketing, writing, advertising, sales, but you've got a fear-based society, right? So it's much easier to say, right, this is the way we've always done it. So therefore, that's what we're always going to do. So nobody challenges the status quo. So it's not that your employees aren't clever. It's not your employees can't see real life. It's that you're not giving them permission to do it. So that would be my blue sky stuff. And then on, on a really, really, really practical level, is that we're just not taking the time, to your point. Why are we impatient? Because we see time all the time, right? So I'm sitting on my laptop doing this at the moment. What do I see throughout the day? For the rest of my Friday, is the time is in the top right of my laptop, right? And I check my phone 67 times a day, probably more because I've got an addictive personality, but the average human checks their phone 67 times a day. Time is being constantly forced into our system. 25 years ago, we were not getting beset by all that time, right? Time makes us rush. Our perception of time when we become aware of it as a number means that we rush things. The more that we rush, the less that we think. The more that we're rushing, the more that our archetype kicks in from a decision-making point of view. It makes our content selfish. It makes it inward-looking. It makes it about our own unconscious cognitive bias, selection bias, assumptive bias, CMO bias. It's just a biased minefield. 
that's where I would go with that question. That was my big blue sky and an in the weeds and Monday morning rant for me. So hopefully that helped. Paul, let's bring you in on this because I know this is an area that you specialize in, which is how do you design bias out of your process? It's actually incredibly confronting. I think for, you know, I do a lot of work with, with leadership teams and so they're dealing with, you know, internal alignment and I think getting internal buy-in. So it's very hard because, you know, the historical view of leadership is leaders had the answers and leaders gave the frameworks and, you know, they designed the tools and then everyone went out and executed. We know that that's just not how modern leadership works. It's a lot more of a coaching exercise. It's more of a creative exercise. And fundamentally, it's a lot more of an empathetic requirement as well. So I think unless you're prepared to listen, first listen and understand as an organization and accept that actually what we we might not be able to do is design all of the answers, but what we could do is hopefully design the tools to help people find the answers inside the business or listen so that we could create content that people want to engage with rather than the content we want them to listen to. I think at the heart of that is this the, the ability or the preparedness to give up control. And you see this with really good product companies, like really incredible cheap product offices in particular. They have this zen-like faith in the universe and in the unknown. And that scares the hell out of most people, you know, especially when you've got big line items, when, you know, you're responsible for people's salaries. And it's very hard for people to get comfortable with not knowing and just listening and responding. What might be relevant today to our stakeholder or audience base might not be relevant to them tomorrow. And we need to be prepared to shift what we do and how what we value in accordance with that. I think there's something really interesting here in that you talk about communicating and being inclusive. I interviewed a fascinating gent. Uh, I released it uh, yesterday, a guy called Ian Dodds. And he opened the podcast, no emotion. And he said, I realized that the opening line was, I realized very early on that I was different because I like the boys and the girls and uh, I'm a bisexual. And I was uh, somebody who grew up on a council estate in the north of England, found a place in Oxford, and that was his opener. So I thought we were on a bit of a roller coaster ride, and we absolutely were, <laughs> because this was a guy who turned around ICI factory by factory, because ICI was just packed with bias. And those biases created conflict, which created unionization. And in fact, in the first factory he worked in, it was a, there was a cell of the communist party, was also the uh, union head. And there was constant industrial action, conflict between them and us, between workers and management. And he came home one day and he heard his parents, because he was still living at home at the time, complaining that the managers never listen. So that inspired him to go into work and start speaking to the workforce. And within mm. five years, he turned the worst performing factory into the best performing factory. 
And then he went and did that repeatedly. And he's never had a single change program fail because he actually listened. So, Alex, let's bring you in on this. How do you listen? I know it sounds like a daft question, but how do you listen? Before I go into that, I just want to pick up on what Paul was saying and what you were talking about, about around eradicating bias. And I think that the important thing here is a bit like, um, you know, when you go and see a, a counsellor for a particular issue, is the first thing you've got to do is admit that it's there, right? You've got to accept, admit and accept that there's bias there. And I think that's quite difficult, isn't it? Because we've kind of been programmed to believe that we should have all the answers. And, you know, being in public relations and, and comms for so long, that was always uh, something that was the tyranny of the work that I felt I was doing in that... We would do a lot of free consulting. We'd do a lot of pitching without asking. That's a bad thing in and of itself. But we'd do it without asking particularly good questions because we felt like part of our special source, part of what we brought to the table was that we had these answers. And if we didn't have these answers, then we weren't good at our job, right? So we'd throw in a load of assumption, throw in a load of bias just to try and prove to people that we were good at our jobs. And I think this is endemic in, in businesses is that people believe that they should have all the answers and if they don't then they're going to be found wanting and therefore you know they're not going to get the promotion or they're you know they're not going to keep their jobs and so that that is part of the problem we have to admit that bias is there and we can't do so uh, we can't eradicate it until we've done so but to answer your question how do we listen well the first thing is to know what the right questions are right so good if you, you need good questions because if you have good questions, you get good answers. So there's no point in listening unless you know, A, the kind of information that you need and you've got the kind of questions that are going to give you that information. I also uh, love a phrase that you have, and, and, and that is that the listening is a full body exercise, right? So it's not just listening to the words that people say. It's about understanding their tone because we communicate most of how we feel through the tone that we use. The listening for, for tone is really, really important. We also communicate how we feel through our body language. And so looking for how people are holding themselves is extremely important because it will give us so much more information than the words that they're using. And so it's really, really important. So good questions, being able to listen with, the, with your whole body and look at exactly what, not what people are saying, but how they're feeling. Because, you know, in order to communicate well with people, we've got to communicate in an emotional way, create an emotional question, so we, connections. So we have to understand how they feel. And the last part of this, I would say, is that in order to gather that information, you've got to use the whole business, right? So, you know, narrative normally starts at the top of the business and filters its way down. Well, I say start at the bottom of the business as well, right? Your people, your salespeople, your, your service people are on the front lines. They're talking to customers on a daily basis. They are the people who get the best feel for the market. And they're the ones that are going to be able to give you the information, the insight you need to create that emotional narrative because they, as I say, understand how the market feels. So good questions, whole body listening experience, understand how people are feeling, but get the information, get the insight from the people who've got it, which are these guys on the front line. I'd add to that, that you need to listen for what's not being said. And very often what you're looking for and listening for are the gaps. They're often the biases will be found 
in uh, how people skirt around a subject. And I think the other thing that's really important to understand is the psychophysiology of all of this, which is that if cortisol and adrenaline are coursing through someone's veins, they're not necessarily thinking rationally. And if you're creating the conditions for oxytocin to be floating through their brain, then people will be more receptive and will be more open to affording you permission. So Martin, on that note, let's bring you back in. How do you communicate in a way that is hormonally positive? I think that I'm going to jump back to to listening just a little bit because it it, it plays a, a very active component on it, right? Because We've we've spoken about bias and stuff today, and there's different levels of listening. Like you find a good coach, you'll get you'll get taught this in, incredibly well. And I know that it's something that plays a big part in in both the thinking and execution of what Paul and Alex do respectively as businesses, right? Because we often go into situations talking about as an individual and as a business, where what we're actually doing is listening for the affirmation that we're already looking for. Right. So we're already trying to find out within a lens of bias. I'm listening to try and find out that what I think is already correct with the direction I want to go is already correct. It's why most uh, business meetings can blow up internally. Right. Because you've got a couple of ego people and then it's the aggressive voices and stuff. And what you've really got is a clash of people's active bias of what they're trying to figure out is going awry. So for me, if you don't have the capability both inside you and as an organization to really listen, then you're going to run into problems because listening really comes down to does your business operate within silos? Does your business operate with just a top-down kind of dictatorship? And a ton of organizations do because it's the nature of humans in itself, right? So one of the things about getting the message right and, and delivering it correctly is are you giving people permission to be heard? Is their voice literally heard, right? It's, it's the number one thing that I'm always looking for. The four businesses that I've built have always been related to getting people's voices heard. When I built the social network, can I give a voice to small businesses? When I built my sales training business, can I give salespeople a voice so that they know what they what they do and what they say matters, right? So it's all different types of permission that you're giving out to people. When I did the sales and marketing growth, it was all about can we get marketing's voice heard within the, the structure of how this brand operates and how this brand thinks instead of marketing being an afterthought that gets given the stuff and then has to execute within a lens of bias and and setting themselves up to fail, which goes back to that tech problem. So for the hormonal and the emotional context of it, it comes back to permission. It's amazing the difference that you can make in anybody's life when they feel that their voice matters. Because if they feel like their voice matters, they're being listened to. If they feel like they're being listened to, they've got permission to put forward their ideas. And we humans, we we automate as much as possible, right? That's the brain's function. Call it the efficiency trick. So if you think about what that means, like we'll automate the way that we dress, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we talk. If very early in an experience, like you start a new job, you're unconsciously given commands that there's no point in trying with this, there's no point having your voice heard. So therefore, just do your job against the KPIs and you can get amazing performance reviews and you're doing everything correct. And even though you know in your heart the business could be doing better, you're fulfilling the needs of your jobs, right? And how that then manifests itself is we say that humans aren't productive enough. Humans don't have enough creativity. Humans don't have enough ideas. And frankly, it's bullshit. 
the problem is that the structure of the business has not given people permission to know that their voice is heard. And therefore, if their voice isn't heard, then we go into more automation. So we kill free thinking. And that that's the that's the killer hormonal output, in my opinion. I recently interviewed my one of my mentors, a guy called Mark Goulston, who's written two of my favorite books. One is called Just Listen, and the other is called Talking to Crazy. And He's an ex-FBI negotiate, hostage negotiator. He's a psychiatrist. He suffered from depression himself. And he is on a mission to prevent teenage suicides. And what's been really interesting about my engagements with Mark is the technologies that he uses in terms of language structure, questions, and particularly empathic listening. And he has this framework called FUD, which isn't the traditional sales FUD. It's frustrated, upset, disappointed as a listening tool. So Martin, I'm sensing that you're frustrated with me. Can you tell me what it is that I'm doing or not doing that's frustrating you? Then it feels like you're upset. Tell me how that feels. And then you must be disappointed in me. And by taking people through that process, what it does is it starts to help them feel felt, be heard, and feel understood, which again is the fundamental driver of all human beings. We all want to feel like others understand how we feel. We want to be heard. We want our voice. And we want to be understood. And when we coach, we have a platform that has three fundamental rules, which are permission, protection, and potency. Permission is that both sides have permission to tell their version of the truth. Protection means that they will not be punished for sharing their thinking and their opinion. And potency means we have equal business stature. And I think this is something that's really often really lacking in the sales and marketing process, because either we go in as the expert and we say, you know, do what, what I say because I know best. Or we put the customer on a pedestal. And either way, that creates the wrong kind of dynamic. That creates a parent-child dynamic and then leads to the I said, he said routine, which in two, uh, you know, two sentences each can result in World War Three. So I say to my wife, sweetheart, where are my keys? And she says, wherever you left them. And my child gets pricked turns to my dad and says, you're going to let her get away with that. Well, you know, if the place was a bit tidier, now her child gets pricked, turns to her mother, and her mother says, well, if you weren't such a slob, and then World War III kicks off. And you see this kind of conflict happening in the boardroom. You see it between departments, between silos, and because they don't have clear boundaries. So, Paul, let's bring you in on this. What are the constraints that serve to generate permission and to get to the truth. The constraints. What do you mean by constraints exactly? There's the tyranny of choice. If you go to a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown and there are 450 things on the menu, odds are you're going to revert back to what you've always ordered. So in my case, it's salt and pepper prawns. It's a safe bet. And the, the problem is that without constraint, you tend to wander. So for the first 17 years of my career, I thought systems and things like that were limiting my creativity. 
what I realized when I discovered good systems was that I could be as creative as I like within each step of the system, but as long as I stuck within the guide rails. And I I prevented myself from wandering off. So what I'm interested in is how you create the conditions to focus the mind in a positive way without limiting the possibility of getting to the truth and getting to how people really feel. Certainly within the context of what I do, I think this goes back to one of the new dimensions of leadership, which is coaching. You know, and I think we're all we, we all do that in some capacity around this table. And coaching, I think, what is essential is that that it establishes parameters. That there is someone that has the capacity to frame the playing field, um, but not di- not dictate the plays. So um, I would say within within a business context, some of those constraints would be uh, making sure that the team, I th- think, has some of the, the softer cultural components that you, you've talked about and um, Martin's talked about. But I think also that they have the tools to empower them. So they have the, the everyone across the business is pulling from the same toolkit. Um, everyone from the business is pulling from the same understanding about customer and about who it is that we're designing for. Everyone from across the business is using the same brand anatomy and understanding about what we value and why we value it. And I think that a lot of the times the fundamental tools aren't there. It's very hard for leaders to feel like they can give away control to teams, but still have faith that the teams will work in an aligned fashion. How do you design those structures and those uh, anatomies and so on in such a way to eliminate bias? Because I can see a train crash if you haven't eliminated the biases. The best way I know how to do it is when they're co-authored. So when they're co-authored vertically and horizontally across a business. So often, let's take brand, for example, purpose, vision, mission, values. You know, there was a time where they were actually authored by third parties. And I think most people now acknowledge that actually, you know, a purpose that sticks and a brand that sticks is co-authored because people can see their own paw print on the final output. So I would say it's really important for a lot of respects to um, make sure that the process of, say, even building that brand anatomy, building that vision of who we are, is done in a co-creative fashion. So with representatives from across the business, you make sure that that, um, a broad set of stakeholder voices are included, that the outputs are then, there's a showcase or the business is educated on them and that the business is taught how to use these tools so they're empowered to use them um, and they're given permission to use them. We certainly see this in the sales process if you do not co-author the proposal with the prospect and their fingerprints are not over it, then you have a less than 100% conversion rate on proposals because a proposal is not a sales document. It's a confirmation of the order. And we see too often that the proposal is something that happens early on in the sales cycle where essentially it's a work of fiction. So... Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Alex, let, let's bring you in on this because I know that what you are really fabulous at is getting the, these uh, different stories and creating a cohesive narrative. So how do you go about doing that in a way that is welcomed? Because I, I know that initially a lot of people must project quite a bit of bias and scepticism uh, against having an outsider bring their story together to help them co-author it. Because I think you, you must spend a lot of time refereeing fights between kids. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a very good point. I love this idea of co-authorship. I'd never thought about it in, that, in, that, in those terms, but I, I think it's absolutely right and absolutely relevant. And typically when, when we're brought into a business, it's because they understand that the way things are working or the way things that, that they're doing things currently isn't working and they need to find a new way. And I think co-authorship stretches to, to vision as well, right? So in terms of there's an internal vision for the business and what the owner wants to achieve uh, and where they feel the business, they want to take the business and the values and principles that kind of prop that up. But actually what's involved in that vision is actually the customer vision as well, what they want for, the, for their clients and what they want to see for their clients and, and, and the results and, and success they want to achieve for those clients. And in a lot of ways, those visions need to be to work together. They need to almost mirror each other, right? And so in order to do that, you need to, you, first of all, as I say, you need to accept that there is bias in the business and that you don't know everything. And that all you are seeing really is from your own lens and you're only seeing your business through uh, your own beliefs and your own assumptions. And what you need to do is add to that lens the customer lens. You need to get out there and, and talk to your customer, understand their uh, context. Uh, context is king. Content, they say, is king. Not true. Context is king. Once you understand the context, the market context, then you can play your content to that and you can achieve a much better penetration because you're actually giving relatable information. I think we were talking about that earlier in terms of relevancy of that stuff. So how do I do that? Typically, I don't need to achieve that because I, I'm being given permission. That's why I'm being brought in because they want to understand that market context and the customer context. And the first thing I say to them, look, we, we cannot... I cannot work with you. I can't do my job unless you give me permission to talk to your clients because that's the very first piece of work. It's the most valuable piece of work that we're going to do. And if I can't have that, then we're just not going to be able to work together. And 99.9% .9 of the time, I'll get that permission because actually they recognize it needs to be done, but it's something that they don't want to do themselves or they don't feel if they're in the, the place to be able to have those conversations. In answer to your question, that is what we seek permission for upfront is to get permission to, to talk to the client. And then going into the client, what we'll do is we will not, I think people expect us to go in there and kind of have a conversation about my client, right? So what do you like about my client? What don't you like? What could they be doing better? All this kind of stuff. And that is absolutely not the conversation that we ever have. We have a conversation about them, who they are, right? So that we open up the conversation by, by asking questions about them, who they are, what they want, why they do what they do, how long they've been doing it for. And, and we do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, because we're genuinely interested, because we need to understand those things, because they, they speak to context. But also because it makes, it makes them comfortable. They feel that we really do 
really want to authentically want to understand them and who they are. And then we can get into some really interesting questioning around, well, look, tell me about the kind of issues you were struggling with that triggered your search for my client's business, right? So what, what were you struggling with? What were the problems that you needed solving? And of course, when you start getting into that kind of a conversation, that's where you're getting the really valuable stuff because most companies think that they sell solutions and, and, or they sell a service, right? And they don't. What they sell is a ability to solve a specific problem that their market's got. So they need to understand what problems they solve. And typically they don't. They don't have any idea. So, so I think that's what it is. It's first of all, getting permission from our client to get the information that we need to help them to communicate better. And then it's getting permission from their client to really understand the context that they find themselves in, the problem that they've got, and how it is that our client solves, solves that issue. What's really interesting is the parallel that we've concluded when we were writing Making Channel Sales Work, that you need to get into the mind and understand your partners. The first thing you have to establish is, are you a good partner? Do you have the intent of helping your partners get better and make them wildly successful? Then you have to get their permission to understand them, why they set the business up, why they're in business, who they serve, what they want to be known for, what they're good at, what they are trying to achieve, uh, how big they want to get, where they want to go, why they want to get there, how they're going to get there. And more often than not, people don't bother to do that. And what they do is they go out and they recruit this land army of partners in the belief that having a, a huge footprint in the market is going to help them sell. But as their partner channel grows, what you find is talent grows in a linear fashion and incompetence, whining, moaning, and uh, excuse-making grows exponentially. And so they end up wasting a huge amount of energy and effort on the wrong partners because they're making terrible assumptions. And the net result of that is that they don't spend enough time in the partners who do produce, helping them to achieve their mission, their purpose, helping them achieve their goals and objectives. And as a result, most of their partners don't produce anything. And a tiny fraction, probably around 2% of their partners, produce 40 to 60% of their revenue. So, Martin, let's bring you in on this, because uh, I, I think, what does the mathematical psychology tell us? And you know, where, where, where can we apply what you have researched in the context of being able to understand the context? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I think that the most difficult thing that I find that all brands have is that they're just caught within the, the generational framework. They're stuck in their ways of doing it. And I, I, I apply that just as much, if not more, to startups, right? So that might sound like it doesn't make sense to, to people. What I'm, what I'm talking about is that when we build a, a type of business, then the next person that comes along that builds a similar types of business, they copy what's gone before, right? Yeah. So if you do that enough times and a business becomes old enough, it gets very stuck in its ways. So I spoke about banking today, but actually the one that really surprises me. So banking's really easy for people to say, stereotypically, it's a bit stuck in its ways, it's a bit stuffy, it's a bit slow moving, things like that, right? Everybody knows that as a kind of assassination of the banking industry. 
the industry that I find to be incredibly similar to banking is fashion, which I find super ironic, right? Because fashion, the perception that we have outside is that it's super creative. It's about emotions. It's about understanding how people dress, how they wear their identity. But I find that they're caught in a very generational setup that is causing just as many problems as what the banking industry causes for itself. From a mathematical psychology point of view, we humans are followers by nature, right? So it's why there's so few leaders in the world, because the brain automates as much as possible. And how do we automate? Well, we copy how other people do it, right? Starting with our family at home, we learn how to tie our shoelaces. And that never stops, right? We learn how to, to tie our shoelaces. We learn how to get dressed. We learn how to eat. We learn how to make a, a cup of tea. It goes on and on. And the same thing happens in a work context. So we unconsciously copy what everybody does. The reality of being human is that most of us are absolutely shitting themselves, trying to figure out how we behave like a normal human, right? So we copy out other people that are trying to behave like normal humans. Everybody's weird. Nobody's particularly normal. So everyone's following this kind of norm of society that doesn't make any sense. To your question, I think the biggest problem that people have is that they're scared. People are scared to ask and they're scared to find out. So relevancy is, is like so close for people. But in order to have relevancy and to seek relevancy, you need to accept that what you understand is quite limited. And what all of us understand is quite limited. It's one of the challenges of life, right? But if we all walk about pretending like we've got the answers and we know what we're doing, then we're going to manifest it so that we're scared to find out. So I think it comes back to the Napoleon Hill stuff, fear versus faith, right? If you're caught within a lens of fear, your, your thinking pattern is fear. Your behavior is based on fear. So it means that the content that you put out, the messaging, the process is all quite defensive. Whereas faith is actually believing enough in yourself, self-esteem, who you are as a brand, who you are as a person. And it means that you're open to go and find things out because that's what faith really comes into. You've got faith in yourself to know that you don't have all the answers so you can accept finding things out. And that means you have to accept that you've made mistakes. And that's really difficult for people because... I always liken it from a mathematical psychology point of view and just a life sense. I liken brand to the same as an individual. A brand is just a, a collection of people behaving in a particular way. If you think about what brand guidelines and brand strategies are, it's like your values and your mission that you go on as an individual, right? It's exactly the same correlation. So if you can't release yourself from it, you're never going to know how to not be defensive or how you're wrapped in fear, which is holding most brands back. That's what it comes down to. So a little bit of faith. There are a couple of things I'd like to add to that. If any of the listeners have not come across something called Project Implicit by Harvard, there is something called the Implicit Association Test. And it's a way of establishing just how many or how much bias you have around gender, race, age, weight, all this kind of stuff. And it's really fascinating because uh, what it does is it uses word pairings. So it has white and good, black and bad, and then it swaps it to white and bad and black and good. And depending on the speed of your response and cognitive dissonance it creates, it gives you an indication of just how biased you are. And that's a really fascinating exercise and one that I urge anyone to undertake so that you first you become aware of those implicit biases within your uh, your mind. The second point I'd like to build on what Martin just said is there is a fundamental rule in life, which is all adults are children trapped in adult bodies. 
the idea that you're a 52 year old man with a mortgage, three kids, and you know you're facing a crossroads in your career because maybe you've been furloughed or uh, you've got to find uh, you know, get another job. There's a little 12 year old boy inside that's shitting a brick and having to try and maintain this facade. And I, I think very few people get out of what we call the drama triangle. And the drama triangle is a way for your ego to get hooked. And ego thrives on drama. So what we tend to do is we tend to react rather than respond. And we tend to overblow a circumstance or a situation. And by reacting to it, it's our lower brain that gets hooked. And as a result of that, then we make some awful decisions, which we then go on to live to regret, assuming we're not killed for it. And net result of that is that very often people have a low self-concept. They have this inner narrative that's going on in their head. And it's picking holes in them. It's criticizing them. It's judging them. And that's the domain of the drama triangle. Now, a very fabulous transaction analysis PhD called uh, A.C. Choi came up with something called the winner's triangle. And the winner's triangle is the antidote to the drama triangle. Instead of being a victim, persecutor, and rescuer, you are vulnerable, nurturing, and empathic, and assertive. And a simple example of this is I'm running late for a meeting, and I phone up Paul and say, Paul, bloody roadworks, I'm doing my best. I'll, I'll be there as soon as I can. Yeah. Versus, Paul, I am so sorry. It's entirely my fault. I misjudged the traffic. I left too late. And I'm running about 20 minutes late. I know how busy you are. And I know how much you hate it when people are late. Would you like me to turn around and I'll call this, you know, chalk this up to experience? And I hope you can forgive me. Now, one is deeply unattractive and the other one is authentic and attractive. And I think the, the question of authenticity is really key here. So, Paul, how do you make sure that not only are you contextually appropriate, but you are authentic in your message? Oh, that's the big one, isn't it? It's, it's actually uh, understanding, you know, our most fundamental truth, our identity. And that's what I think as individuals people find confronting. That's kind of what a good therapist does is they sort of they pull it out and stick it on the table and get you to slap it around a little bit. It's hard for organizations because, you know, especially there's a, you know, we're in the era of greenwashing and a lot of companies are doing what they believe they should do, but it's not actually what they believe. And I think acceptance of who you are as an organization, I can't remember who said it earlier around sort of one of the pathways to permission is accept that bias exists, accept, accept our own truth. And I think that that's one of the most confronting things for a business, especially if you're dealing with teams or people that have been there for a while. It's easier to transform when, when you're an outsider. You know, it's the, the gift of a kind of outsider thinking and outsider's perspective. I'm coming in with a mandate to change or I'm coming in because things are screwed up here and it's up to me or a point of view that I have to help resolve that. You know, it's much easier to challenge identity 
when it's not yours. <laughs> it's much harder when it's your identity that you need to challenge. So, yeah, it's a, uh, did you say rent an adult? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a service that I offer because more often than not, when people don't, when they're in conflict, it's their child and their parent ego state that's been hooked and helping them get back into an adult to adult conversation is really key. Learning yeah. how to contract with people is really key. I mean, what, one of the things that I've observed is only about 15% of conversations between people start and end in an adult to adult context. If you learn how to do something called upfront contracting, then you contract all the way through. Mm-hmm. So you have mutual agreement, mutual acceptance, mutual understanding, mutual comfort, mutual commitment. And the terms of your contracts are clear, specific, and certain. Then you can enforce those contracts if you have to, if someone breaches what's been agreed. But by and large, you don't ever really have to make a big decision because you've made lots of little decisions along the way. When we're selling, I would say typically by the time we get to the end of the sales cycle, we've probably agreed on somewhere between 600 and 1,200 things. Now, Mm. if we're waiting till the end to get that agreement, that's a hell of a big agreement. And a lot of the nuance is missed. But if it's contextually, as you go along the cut through the conversation, you're establishing, are you okay with that? Does that make sense? What would you like to do next? And learning how to establish those boundaries up front, then you can operate from what we would term an adult and a nurturing parent ego, uh, nurturing parent ego states. And too often, what happens in a sale, but I think where ego gets hooked is you operate from a critical parent or an, a child ego state, but not the natural child who is curious, self-directed, and autonomous, but from an adaptive child, one that rolls over and capitulates, or from the little professor, the know-all, which I'm occasionally guilty of. And the rebellious child, where they just dig their heels in, they give you the unibrow, hands on hips. No. Yeah. My next door neighbor's got a two year old, and the morning prayer is, No, mummy, no, mummy, when he's going into the bath. And that goes on for about half an hour. And I think we're conditioned to that. Our natural instinct too often is to resist change. And uh, what Ian Dodds taught me was that. If you create that inclusiveness, if you bring a quorum of people together from diverse backgrounds and you have everybody share their voice, put their fingerprints over the solution, then change programs actually are welcomed and successful. They don't fall apart and they don't end up in a situation where people resent the change and then throw a spanner in the works to make it fail. So. Martin, in terms of ensuring that you have that buy-in and making sure that when you're presenting your narrative to the world, that it's welcomed, what advice would you give to CMOs and their teams in terms of bringing other parts of the business in, in order to ensure that they're getting a, a richer picture? Yeah, it's a great point. So I'll share two pieces of, of our, our IP of what sits within our product. One is clarity and intrigue. 
So if you don't make your message clear and intriguing right at the very start, then you're setting yourself up to fail. You can apply that against content that you put out as much as presenting to stuff internally, right? So it forces you to think from the perspective of the people that you're putting in front of. So it eliminates your bias by doing that by proxy, right? So looking back at my corporate career, one of the problems I ran into with marketing, because my core uh, career was running sales groups, right, was that they were always talking their language. And it never made sense to me as a salesperson who understood my customers because I interacted with them all the time. So I always felt that marketing was disconnected from it. So there was always a there was a misconception of common language. And that is one of the reasons why I think sales and marketing creates this silo is that they don't speak from the customer's language, which goes back to, to Paul's point and what Alex was talking about and always talks about with the, the storytelling arc and understand your customers, right? You've got to be coming from the same place which is your customer's voice. If you do that, then you've got more chance of succeeding, right? The next thing that that should be in everything that everybody does is gains and outcomes, right? So we humans make 35,000 decisions a day and the vast majority of them are to reject everything we come into contact with. There's very little that we engage with, right? And it's why, going back to the very start, why so much tech content doesn't make sense, why so much B2B content doesn't make sense, why fashion companies don't actually understand why people buy and wear their clothing, everybody's caught in this lens of looking internally instead of looking out to the customer side of it. So that's what it comes down to for me is that the brain is going to constantly harvest things that it think is relevant. And if it's not relevant, it's going to reject it. So the vast majority of things get rejected. If you show me the gains and outcomes and you make it clear and you show me some intrigue, then I'm going to engage with you. And that means that you're going to switch on actively listening. You're going to get my focus, whether that's internal or external. That's what it should come down to. So I find that In my world, I see no difference between me going to an internal meeting versus an external meeting. I put the same effort, the same thinking into it, and I don't think most people do that. I think most people default internally to talking about language that makes sense in their role, and it ends up pushing people out the door. Because if you're a salesperson presenting to marketing people, or you're a marketing person presenting to a salesperson, what normally happens is you switch people off within the first 15 seconds of that meeting. And the rest of it is people just clock watching because they can't be bothered being there. And the reason and they doing can't... And doing email. Exactly, yeah. I, oh, man, don't get me started. So I find this even more in... So you got me started, so I'm just in it. I'm running with it. I find that this is even more prevalent in US culture, particularly in software businesses, right? Nobody should come into a meeting and sit on their tablet, laptop, and phone during the meeting. It's the rudest thing. Nobody's that important. Nobody's that special. I always used to think that I was much more interested in what I am, right? And I used to think I was much smarter than what I am, and I thought I was more important than what I was. And then in 2016, I deleted email from my phone, right? Then I deleted all social media. And the only thing that happened is that I had more time, right? Because if you think about any time that you're answering emails on your phone, it depends on who you are, right? So if you're a person that's super calm all the time, that's great. But if you're somebody that, like most of us, under pressure, your dominant archetype is going to come forward, your dominant personality is going to come forward, your dominant disc style is going to come forward, right? So if you're answering emails on your phone, it generally means that you're on the go and you're not in the right context. When you're sitting in front of your laptop, you're generally a lot more settled. doesn't mean that you won't be emotive, but you're in a much better place. So from my point of view, there's zero gain going into a meeting with a piece of technology in your hand because it's both disrespectful to the person that you're listening to and you're just not listening to them. 
And I think it's then you've got into what, like we could go into the innovation of problem solving and what size of meetings should be. And by the way, it should be five or seven people. You should have at least 50% women or you're setting yourself up to fail. There's all kinds of different stuff like that as well. So you got me into a little bit of a rant mode. I can't even remember what the question was, but I think I vaguely answered it. <laughs> well, Marcus, I've had a thought, which doesn't happen very often. And, and I'd like to test the thought with everybody because I think it fits really nicely into everything that's being said specifically around the question of authenticity and around permission, right? Because the best way to get permission for somebody is to be authentic and to be, to be very real with them. And I wonder if the problem is this, both internally and externally. And I think, Martin, you're probably the best placed person to kind of talk to this psychologically, but I'd be interested in everybody's opinion. And that is that finding authenticity is actually quite a destructive process. And that's why it's quite difficult to do because and this starts from when we're very young, in order to fit in, to feel like we're part of the social group, a lot of the time we have to build a facade, don't we? A public face of ourselves in order you know, to, to feel like we, we're going to get acceptance. And I think businesses as a DNA, as a, a thing, a living thing, also have that kind of build that facade over time. And so when you're going in and you're doing the job that we do, what we're, and we're trying to find that authentic voice, that authentic vision that's going to really connect with the market, the first job is actually to destroy the facade, to find that authenticity. And that's, a, that's a quite a violent process. So, so it doesn't surprise me that a lot of businesses would be averse to it. And I just wonder whether what people think about that. I think it's I think a, yeah, from my point of view, it's a great point, Alex. Um, I think that to be authentic, as you said, the key thing I'm taking away from what you said is that the reason why brands find it hard to be authentic is that it means that they have to admit that they're not currently. And in order to admit they're not currently, it means that they haven't, they've made a mistake, right? That they haven't been real to something. And they might not think about it like that, but who's going to raise it? That's the problem. Who's actually going to raise it and say, we're not being authentic, right? And it comes back to that fear-based society that we live in. If everyone's hitting their KPIs, right, then we can get away with average. That's what happens. In my opinion, I think most KPIs generate average, which is kind of ironic because they're there to set up human productivity, right, and performance. But actually what they do is limit human productivity and performance because it kills free thinking. So I think mm -hmm. that trust and authenticity, banking, fashion, by our estimates, we reckon about 86% of brands just messed up during COVID. So to your point earlier, Alex, the ones that didn't, the ones that were honest, that were open, that were clear, that gave their support. I mean, the stuff that Lego did, here's 50 million, we're going to give it to kids disadvantaged, it's going to go to our foundation, this is what we're going to do with it. What I just said is very clear, this is what we're going to do, this is what we care. And as I've said to people, you can be more Lego, I'm not saying that brands should have given away money, but when you start coming out, as a number of fashion brands did, and I spend a lot of time in fashion, right, and I love it, so I'm just analysing the market, I'm not criticising the market by intent, or I'm not meaning to is most of them came out and said, right, whatever you buy from us in April, we'll give 10% to whatever, right? So they're still asking you to spend money. They weren't being real to the actual situation. They weren't putting themselves in the customer's shoes. So mm -hmm. I think authenticity is trust. And in order to get there, you have to admit, you have to look inside both as a person and as a brand and understand that you're not being authentic because most people are still trying to shift product and there's nothing wrong with sales but you can't shift product without understanding what's going on in your customer's mind at the moment. And that comes back to authenticity, right? Not just trying to bullshit past it, which is what I think 
over 85 percent of them did really i think it's super interesting isn't it it's actually it is quite confronting i think you're right alex in that it's you know the search for authenticity i think in our own lives as well as in sort of our corporate selves it's confronting because it requires us to sort of step away from the comfort of of what we know and i think to your point martin i wonder whether there's a perceived commercial risk in businesses being authentic and i wonder whether that's sort of often how it, the whole equation is justified well we'll do it this way because it makes commercial sense and what i think your analysis has probably shown is that actually the businesses that demonstrate authenticity and lead with values invest in the things that don't that might not make commercial sense at that time i wonder whether they are inherently more profitable or better performing businesses i don't know if you have you looked at that like the businesses that tend to operate off sort of a baseline of authenticity versus the businesses that tend to operate off a more sort of functional transactional platform how they perform I don't have a full marketplace answer about it, right? But from the the limited analysis we've done, which is just under 20 companies, I think we're at 18 at the moment, is that the ones that are more authentic are are just experiencing better growth. And Mm -hmm. the reason why they're experiencing better growth is that the authenticity flows back into the permission, right? So the more authentic a brand is, the more it's giving its employees permission and permission is getting your voice heard and sharing ideas and doing more and being more. So it's the balance of um, creativity and discipline. It's like what Marcus was talking about, right? Was that if you understand what the right tools and how to select the right tools and you give people permission, you've got discipline and productivity, but you've got the creativity of people's voices being heard. And that is authenticity in itself, right? I don't believe that a brand can be authentic in its... PR, advertising and marketing if its staff is not part of that journey because if their staff isn't part of it, it seeps out into everything because of course it does. It becomes a a conditional bias, right? So we have to behave internally how we're projecting externally or you're just into that kind of bullshit of having values that don't mean anything, you know? Being authentic is is risking self, isn't it? When we have to, when people say to us, just be yourself. Well, I'm not sure I want to be because I don't know if people are going to accept me and I'm, I'm, I'm frightened of rejection. So, uh, you know, again, a lot of businesses are risk averse. So that idea of authenticity and, and really doing it is scary because it's risky. So to build on that, the way we define risking versus sacrificing, risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility of losing some or all of what you've got. Sacrificing is going from higher to lower value with no upside. And in being risk averse, what many organizations end up doing is sacrificing because not taking the risk actually causes them harm and they uh, lower their value. And you only have to look at the decline of businesses that can't let go of what made them successful in the past, Mm. as Marty was saying right at the beginning. And because they can't let go of that, then they get left behind. Now, You also, uh, Martin, pointed to something else that's very near and dear to my heart, and I've already mentioned it, which is the juxtaposition between the drama triangle and the winner's triangle. So I'm going to share my screen. So I'm going to describe it for the people who are only listening on audio, but there will be a video of this. Now, above the line, we have 
the drama triangle. And the drama triangle is made up of the victim voice. Why me? This is so unfair. This always happens. And their favorite refrain is, save me. And they attract persecutors. And persecutors basically jab you in the face or chest and say, you piece of shit, you always, you never, you're such a disappointment. You must do this. You ought to do that. And then you have the rescuer. And rescuing is helping without boundaries or permission. It's incredibly disempowering. This is where people, as managers, for example, come in and change your work. They don't let you fail. Now, the best managers that I know let you fail, but they don't let the business fail. And they understand that failure is a great teacher. But what tends to happen is people move around this drama triangle, as we did earlier with the example of running late. And we come into the drama triangle with negative preferences, negative expectations, and prejudices, prejudgments. And we compare that to the reality as we perceive it, and we end up giving an emotional reaction. Now, if we are stuck in the drama triangle, we're either stuck in the past or we're worrying about the future. Now, if on the other hand, we're operating from the winner's triangle, which is a place of authenticity, we're operating from being vulnerable, nurturing and empathic and assertive, and we're fully present. We are in the moment. We're not stuck on our emails. We're not worrying about supper. We're not worrying about the argument we had with our spouse or our kids. And we come in with a positive preference to come out with an outcome that serves both sides. And the expectation is that we will come out with a good outcome. So we compare that through our reality filter and perception filter, and we can then deliver a rational response. And I think one of the major problems here is that so often people fail to operate from the winner's triangle because whilst it's incredibly simple, it's very difficult because we we get sucked into the drama because we judge, we are fearful, we are angry, we're resentful, we have a sense of entitlement. And if we're operating like that as a brand, as a business, then our customers and our prospects will pick up on that. And you only have to look at the horrific waste. Only one in eight first meetings results in a second meeting. So that means seven-eighths of the marketing that's got you to the point where you're in front of a prospect has just been burnt. And then you look at the conversion rates after that. You're typically talking sales cycles of roughly one in 12 to one in 20 that are actually started, end up at that final decision. And then you have a one in three conversion rate. That smacks of incredible waste, which is why I said earlier on that you you would be better off buying lottery tickets. I know Martin disagrees or didn't want to go go quite that far. But honestly, you've probably got a one in 16 billion chance of closing if you're doing that sort of stuff and you're operating from that drama triangle. So the way that it starts with the marketing as well. I mean, you, you talk about those kind of stats and they're horrifying, right, in terms of the amount of opportunity that's wasted. But that wasted starts with the marketing. Well, we talked about it earlier, right? 98% of Google ads got little to no interactivity. 99% of Facebook ads get little to no interactivity. 95% of content gets little to no engagement. So, you know, we've got to change because although people will say, oh, we're still getting 
results, you know, we're still getting ROI, but look at what you're missing out on. You're missing out on 95 to 99% of the market. And that is incredibly wasteful. My, my question is this, are we focused on the right end of the problem? And I think this is probably subject for another conversation, but are we really focused on the right metrics? Because the likes, the comments, and the shares, I see those to a large extent as vanity metrics. My pal Al Tepper measures one thing, which is buzz. And I have to agree with him. It's the subsurface communication where people lurk, they consume your content, but they don't engage necessarily until you are directly relevant and timely. I had 13 meetings last week, of which I think 11 or 12 of them had never once engaged with my content. But something I posted resonated with them in that moment And then they connected with me on uh, LinkedIn. Then we set up my lead funnel to ensure that they uh, booked a meeting. And we had interaction below the surface so that it was out of the public glare. And that's what attracted them. And I think to a large extent, you know, Paul, if you look at Kahoot, you know, with your 70 million uh, regular users, how many of them do you reckon Kahoot has actually uh, had communication with? Oh, There's something like a billion users a year these days. But really, the main communication is with the content creators, so teachers, which are really a fraction of that. They do communicate pretty regularly with their stakeholders. And what I think Kahoot does well is that they, when they communicate, they try and add value through upskilling, training, tips, tricks, content, elevating heroes on the platform, that kind of thing. So it sounds to me, actually, it's uh, using those, Seth Godin would call sneezers, and communicating with them to convey their message and uh, create value for the users through their third parties. So is that a conversation that maybe we should dig into? Yeah. Well, I mean, the other interesting thing, though, and this is, we only discovered this. We didn't design for this. Often, teachers would sign up to Kahoot because a student of theirs had recommended it because a mate of theirs in another class had played it and they said, hey, miss, why aren't we playing Kahoot? It's apparently awesome. Everyone loves it. So we started actually designing more for the indirectly for students or for the players. So we would do things like elevate players, even though there was no direct correlation back to, say, signing up as a creator. We knew that actually when we elevated them, when we elevated their tweets or their Instagram posts or Facebook posts or their content, or we would look at how language could be used through the gameplay to make them feel special. I mean, they were definitely triggers that we, they were our, they were an indirect audience. Very interesting, because it strikes me that what you're describing there is a fundamental driver In local newspapers, it's names, names, names. The number one uh, reason why people leave their job is they don't feel appreciated. It keeps coming back to this fundamental of recognition. And I think to build on Martin's point earlier and Alex's point, being contextually relevant is actually really about uh, helping people feel like they belong to something, that they have a purpose that they're part of something bigger than themselves because we are herd animals. So, Alex, let's uh, finish with you. So 
What are your conclusions from this conversation? Something that Paul just said just smacked me as kind of the heart of what we've been talking about, right? So he's talking about cahoots and he's talking about success. And you talked about something that happened that you hadn't designed for, you discovered, right? And so the designed for is the bias and the discover is the authentic reaction of your market to your product, right? And so discovery mm. is so important. Listening is mm. so important. And, and, and to, to the point that you just made, Marcus, I've been blown away and I'm quite humbled by the conversation today because just listening to you guys, the level of insight you have an understanding of people, right? And then the way you tell your stories and the way you put your points across, I mean, I'm just absolutely blown away by it. Uh, I mean, Martin in particular, that his grasp of people is so powerful. And when we're communicating, and, and you made this point, Marcus, you know, you've been able, you've put out one bit of content and you've got 10 people coming to you saying that, that you know, it really spoke to me. The reason that is, is because, because of your awareness of people and your able, ability to communicate it, they, they see your content and they go, well, you know, Marcus really, he really gets me. He doesn't just get me. He's like a mind reader. He's, he's able to see into my mind and see what I'm thinking. Uh, and not just that, these problems that I've got that I can't articulate to anybody that I, I desperately need solving, give me so much clarity around. You understand, not only understand the problem, but you're able to articulate it in a way that I've never been able to articulate. Therefore, I believe you understand me and, and by extension, believe that you've got the solution, that you've got the answer. You must do because you understand the problem so well. That would be my takeaways. But one is design is too bias related. It's all about discovery and listening. And the other thing is then once you've discovered and you've understood project that out into the market so that people feel that you get them and then they give you permission to talk further. Very interesting. So I'm just going to summarize the notes that I've made throughout this session. So first of all, that buying eyeballs is a waste of money. 92 to 98% of marketing spend on buying eyeballs is utterly wasted. You have to co-create your message with the people who are at the front lines and with your customers. You need to think as them, not for them. Permission is an act, a voluntary act. It's not something that can be wrestled from them. It requires patience. And to Marty's point, you have to have faith and stop focusing on fear. People want control. And the more control you cede to them, the more they will engage with you and the more they will buy. You have to demonstrate to their satisfaction that you understand how they feel. And if you don't, then what you'll end up with is a point of resistance and you will create the objections. You will create the resistance. You need to offer permission, protection and potency so that in, in a, a conversation with internally or externally, both sides have a voice. You have equal business stature and they will not be punished for it. They're protected. You need to engage throughout the organization so that you start creating common language, not a specific language or jargon that excludes. And the language needs to be the language of the customer, not your internal framework. And no one buys what you sell. They buy gains and outcomes. And if you are unclear about that, then chances are you will be sacrificing the future of your business 
and leave large amounts of money on the table. And also, uh, you'll probably alienate large proportions of your loyal customer base who will still be loyal, but they won't be buying. I think that's a pretty fair summary. Anyone want to add anything? No, that was awesome. That was absolutely awesome. Excellent. Okay. So, guys, thank you very much. Thank you, Martin Lucas, Paul Alexandru, and Alex Mosco. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. And the four amigos will be back in a couple of weeks with the next installment. See you soon. Happy selling. Stay safe. Bye-bye.